The world's leaders have once again gathered to discuss actions surrounding the pressing matter of global warming, or as it's more commonly termed these days, climate change. Of course, we're talking about the 28th Conference of the Parties, or COP28, which just wrapped up in Dubai. A major outcome of last year's COP, at least for developing nations across the globe, was the agreement to start a loss and damage fund, which as it turns out was no small feat on the part of our representatives. This was made clear to us back in episode 17, when we sat down with diplomacy experts Ruana Haynes and Shalif Lewing from Climate Analytics, who shared their experiences supporting negotiations on the ground and told us a gripping tale of the decades-long struggle just to bring the issue of loss and damage to the table at the cup. This loss and damage issue uh, is one that has been live in the context of the global climate discussion since the beginning of that discussion. So we're talking 30 years ago, at least. It was good to learn more about this issue, but it was especially impactful to get these first-hand accounts from our own Caribbean activists, each presenting a unique perspective while effectively representing our collective point of view. This got us thinking about journalism, a form of activism in its own right, focused on preserving history, securing transparency, and keeping us all informed on key issues, as well as the discussions and negotiations surrounding them at influential global events such as the COP. With this in mind, we reached out to two young journalists setting out to do exactly that on the ground this year at COP28, with support from Climate Tracker. We just wanted to get an idea of what they were thinking about ahead of the event. First, we spoke to Kalisha Williams from Television Jamaica, who was about to experience the event in person for the first time. So I've heard a lot of stories about just knowing what to cover and trying not to suffer from information overload. Then we had a chat with Ryan Bechu from CNC Trinidad and Tobago. He had his first in-person experience last year, so we thought it might be interesting to see what was on his mind going into round two. So what they are covering versus what we are covering are completely different. And I think it's very important um, that we cover the things that are impacting us most. So let's get to know two of our up-and-coming climate correspondents and talk about the work they're doing to keep us up to date on global events such as COP28. In this episode of Caesar Voices. First this evening, Prime Minister Andrew Honest has reached out to the United Nations for help to stem the flow of illegal weapons and drugs into Jamaica. Mr. Holness made the appeal as he addressed the United Nations General Assembly on Friday, saying Jamaica cannot take on the fight alone. TVJ's Kalisha Williams is at United Nations in New York and now reports. Kalisha Williams is an award-winning journalist who's been with Television Jamaica for around seven years now. She's done several news reports, as well as special features exploring a number of important issues. But her focus shifted towards the environment after a very significant accomplishment set her career on a collision course with history. In 2019, I was awarded the United Nations RAF Fellowship to cover the General Assembly in New York. It just so happened that the fellowship coincided with, I think it was the largest well, the first ever climate summit put on by the UN General Assembly. 
General Secretary Antonio Guterres at the time. And there was this massive climate protest in New York. And it just so happened that I had the opportunity to be a part of it uh, as, as, a, as a journalist, just being in the streets of New York and covering the story. And there was just this sense of belonging, like, okay, Kalisha, this is something that you could focus on. And I also attended the climate summit at the UN. And then there was a youth climate summit too. And I participated in that as well. And I was like, okay, um, that is when my interest in climate change really started to grow. And that same year, actually, I did a predict, I think it was my first long format feature for television Jamaica. It was about 20 minutes. I looked at climate change and how it impacts vulnerable groups. So I focused on primary school children because at the time in Jamaica, we're experiencing a heat wave and children, particularly those who wear very long skirts and they're in classrooms that are not properly ventilated, they were having serious issues. So I did a feature on that. And it so happened that that year I won the Press Association of Jamaica's award for best feature story. So it really started there where uh, I think climate change kind of ch it chose me. And I started you know, covering more climate change stories, looking at the impact of climate change on agriculture, on tourism. And I think I started applying for more opportunities to be a part of climate conferences. So that is really where it started. We caught up with Kalisha while she was preparing to represent TVJ in Dubai as part of Climate Tracker's COP28 Climate Justice Journalism Fellowship Programme. She was also a Climate Tracker Fellow last year, having covered COP27 virtually and travelled to Canada to report on the UN Biodiversity Conference. So the process wasn't entirely unfamiliar to her. Okay, so I guess you kind of have an idea of um, what it can be like trying to actually get to the COP. You know, can you tell yes. us a little bit about that journey, your preparation in terms of getting there? So it is... A lot of people say climate change is a very technical topic to cover, especially if you're new within the field and if you're presenting it for a wide audience. You have to be able to dissect the information, interpret it in a way that people can understand. You have a lot of acronyms, a lot of jargon, a lot of science, you know, is in climate change. Climate Tracker has like a month-long intense training where we kind of break down the issues looking at loss and damage, looking at the global stock take, uh, just transition, the global methane pledge, that the big issues that would expect to be covered from at um, COP28. So a lot of research has to go into it and speaking with persons who have been there before. It's my first climate change conference. So I, I am trying to get as much information as I can. Also sitting down meeting with my editor to look at the stories that people would be interested in. I think this year for me, it would be a little easier because we saw the, we felt the impact over the summer with record temperatures with we saw what happened with the drought with the intense rain so it would be easier to make the connection with the jamaican audience but yeah it's a pretty intense uh, process you have a lot of reading a lot of research and every day you have different reports coming out and tracking the conferences are the summits that 
they're having before COP28. That is also important. So you can at, at least know what to expect. I mean, at COP27, the big, I think the big ticket item for me was really the establishment of the loss and damage fund. And that conversation will continue at COP28, where the fund will be operationalized. So it's good to see what the groundwork that's been going on now. So tracking the issues from the previous conferences and what others are seeing and knowing also what Jamaica, Jamaica's national targets. So I had to go through Jamaica's MCDs just to see what is the country's position heading to COP and what are the priority areas. Okay, cool. And I mean, I know you covered the COP. I mean, you know, you're you're not new to the COP itself, certainly yes. as a journalist, right? Um, in terms of looking forward to that experience of being there in person, right? We spoke to Che Liwing after his first COP. And he was really telling us a lot about like, you know, what it felt like to actually be there, the atmosphere on the ground. Have you heard mm -hmm. such stories and, you know, what are you anticipating in terms of that in-person experience? Oh my gosh, yes, I've heard that because <laughs> you're going to have like hundreds of meetings each day. And I mean, you, you're going to have times where you don't know, you're going to get lost. You don't know which meetings to cover and just finding the priority areas for your country because you have so many side events and each year is kind of, pool is kind of expanding. So I've heard a lot of stories about just knowing what to cover and trying not to suffer from information overload and just the networking opportunities. It's a very good uh, forum to network and to advance your career and also learn from other countries because yes, Jamaica may have different issues from like Malaysia or Fiji, but we're still small island developing states and to see how reporters are approaching their stories, I think that would be good. But I'm, I mentioned earlier that I went to COP15, which was last year, December, the Biodiversity Conference. So I know it's kind of similar to that. And so I kind of have like an idea of what to expect, but I know it's going to be a lot in terms of planning, planning and being organized and having like an idea of what I want to do each day, but it's, it is a great opportunity and I've heard the success stories and how persons just being able to get in the same room with some of the world leaders, being able to finally land an interview. I think Ryan also last year, he, you know, he spoke to Mia Motley getting an exclusive interview. So for him, that was really good. So I see it as a good opportunity to advance, advance my career and to kind of help influence climate policies in Jamaica using my platform as a journalist to kind of report on the issues and why they are important. So, so yes. As you got into like um, the success stories there as well, what would you say is, uh, what would you say is your biggest goal for the COP this year in terms of you as a journalist going there? What's my biggest goal? Well, I hope, I I hope it's not a pressure <laughs> question here, so no, you know. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> well, my, well, actually, I, my goal, because I'm, I'm planning to do like a more extensive piece after COP. I want to start, I'll be using my, I'll be like a mobile journalist on the ground, because I'll be the only one. I'm a TV reporter and I'll be doing do the recording, doing the audio, doing everything, really. So my goal is to do like a full-on 30-minute piece from the minute I enter the plane, just explaining what happened, looking at the our carbon footprint, even traveling to COP and tied into a nice television piece of pulling the curtain on what happens from when you enter the plane, when you arrive at the airport, 
first day of the conference. So I'll be doing little snippets of what happened throughout the COP and I'll put it together in a big in, in one final piece. So that's really my, my my biggest goal is to do that, to do a mini documentary, you know, for television Jamaica after I leave COP. And also to get some of the exclusive interviews as well. I am hoping that Jamaica's Prime Minister will be there because I would really love to speak to him there about Jamaica's strategy going forward, especially when it comes to our water our water sources. I think we saw over the summer where we had significant water restrictions. Farmers were affected, tourism sectors sector uh, being affected. And just this week, uh, the PIOJ in Jamaica, which is the Planning Institute of Jamaica, saying that agriculture is the only sector last year which saw a decline. And this is very significant to our GDP. And the decline has been attributed to drought. So we see our, our other sectors within Jamaica's economy, you know, are being impacted by climate change. So what is the way forward? And also getting more youth to be a part of the conversation. So I'm really looking out to have that that interview my prime minister, hopefully, at COP. I love to hear that. Because <laughs> we, we need we need that, especially when he said earlier that you want to kind of like blow the door wide open. I think that is that is really important. That I, I think people really need to understand what um, you know, representatives of small island developing states, be it in the media or anyone who yes. might be negotiating, are actually going through at these events, you know. Yes. I think that's brilliant. Yes. I look forward to seeing that. Yeah, I hope I hope it's it works out but it will yeah absolutely universe <laughs> absolutely and to your point about um more youth getting involved which is important yes. right i feel like you're in a good position to talk about like the role of technology both in terms of now and potentially uh how it can kind of help to bring more youth into the picture you know get more youth involved mm -hmm. so for instance you when you covered it um before from a distance how did you do that? Can you give us an idea of, of your process there? So I had to get up very early because first of all, Sharmil Sheikh is um, in a completely different time zone, you know. Right. But the good thing, as you mentioned, with technology, technology is bridge those gaps. So this, the sessions were live streamed and I can always go back on YouTube and watch them. But I like to get an early start. So I would get up early, plan my day, watch uh, segments of the conferences on the live stream, which would have been would have ended probably like two or three hours prior to me watching it. So I like to get an idea of how I can connect what is happening at COP to what is happening in Jamaica. So that was my main goal. So on the thematic days, when you have children, finance day, agricultural day, tourism day, I would do stories along those lines. So I did story looking at children, how children are impacted and why children should be a part of the conversation. I looked at agriculture. I think I also did a story on tourism. So I tried to align my stories with what was happening at at COP. And the good thing is that you don't have to be physically. Yes, for some stories, you have to be physically at COP, but just how technology has been used to transcend borders, <laughs> you know, really. I was able to get access. And there are no major barriers in terms of even language. I mean, even though you have 
persons making their speeches in French or Spanish, you have the translation. So the ease of access for me is very important because sometimes you have persons who may not have the opportunity to be at COP physically. You have financial constraints, other resource constraints. So I'm happy that we're able to incorporate technology into the conversation. No, that's true. And I mean, persons like yourself who actually be there really serve as an important bridge in that regard. As yes. you said, because I know they have the live streams and everything, but then to have someone there you now with experience who can put everything in context, like yes. Yes. always good to have that. Um, will you be like uh, live streaming or anything like that, like yourself, as, aside from the footage that I know you'll be collecting while you're there? So I will try to do insta like probably live streams on social media, but... Out, for instance, television live. I I don't think I'm maybe able to do that based on the time zone. But I would I'm I plan to do some live stream on social media to make it more interactive and to reach that particular audience. Because what I realize these days is that a lot of people, young people, are not really watching <laughs> traditional media. So I believe as a reporter, no, I kind of have to do some introspection and to see how can I reach those people who may not be getting up or setting their alarms to watch primetime news at seven. Those people who are on the, on the go, they want to see uh, content on TikTok. They want to see content on Instagram. They want to see content on Twitter. So I'm going to try my best to incorporate those tools in my plan because i think it's very important especially in reaching people across the globe not only people in jamaica and i think that is it is important very solid point especially when he said like you know young people are not getting up to to watch the traditional news and so on mm, exactly. so it's important yeah it's important to present not just these new formats in terms of social media and stuff but even these sorts of perspectives i think it's really good to have a young perspective there you know, somebody yes, who's not going to the be, audience. Yeah, exactly. People you know. don't want to see long format. Some some people don't want to see anything beyond 10 minutes. So how can you tell that something, what is happening, for instance, on the global stock take in 30 seconds and post it on Instagram? Exactly. You know, exactly. I think, yeah, we have to kind of reassess the way how we tell stories, especially with the advent of new technologies and globalization. No, that's it. That's it. Of course, Kalisha's a very busy person, so we had to let her get back to work. Before we did, however, we asked her if there was anything that she really wanted to share with our listeners. Yes, I, I think in regards to the barriers of you know youth being a part of the conversation, I mentioned financial, I think I touched on it briefly. The financial constraints, a lot of time people don't have the resources to attend some of these conferences. So I think with more sponsors, both private sector, NGOs coming on board to kind of facilitate youth and sponsor some of these young people especially in the caribbean who may not be able to attend some of these conferences i think that is important and also mainstreaming climate education in our curriculum because last year when i was covering uh, climate the impact of climate change on children and i went to some of the primary schools talking to children a lot of them did not really understand what was happening with climate change you know so i think we need to kind of make it a part of our curriculum because it's uh, it, it is a pressing global issue that will impact everyone. So I think we need to start there. When world leaders meet next week in Glasgow for the Conference of Parties 26, the Caribbean will not only have a seat at the table, but also a voice demanding action. 
Ahead of the summit, Ryan Beach, you had the opportunity to sit down with the United Nations Global Ambassador for Climate Change. It's hard to think of a topic Ryan Beachu hasn't covered in his 10-plus years as a journalist. You'd probably agree if you took a look at his YouTube channel, if you're not a Trinidadian already seeing his face regularly on local TV. In his time at CNC3 Television, Rand's pretty much done everything, from cheerful morning talk shows to documentaries dealing with more serious issues. He's also deeply interested in the issue of climate change, but as we found out when we got in touch with him just before he headed to COP28, this is a fairly recent development. What got you interested in climate change in the first place? I'd just like to get an idea of what goes on in people's minds. Yeah, it's a good question, but uh, I, I, I could give you the, uh, the answer that most people would like, uh, but it wouldn't be the truth answer that, you know, that I'm you know, very much in, I was very much interested in the environment and very passionate about climate and the changing climate and the impact of it. Not really, to be honest. Um, I, it was actually all very uh, organic, if you want to call it that, to be honest, Jelani. You see, just like Kalisha, Rand's interest was sparked quite by chance. I remember it was COP26 and one of my editors came to me and said that we were going to do an, an interview with the United Nations Global Ambassador for Climate Change. She was available. She was just recently as well appointed. And they came to me and they said, uh, we don't have anybody to do it. Um, would you do it? Uh, and I was like, you know, why me? I, I don't know anything about climate change. I don't really cover the climate. I have very basic knowledge. And uh, they said, well, you know, we don't have anybody else. So I studied as much as I could study. I did as much research as I could do. And I, and I, went, to, um, I went to her home and we did the interview. Uh, I did the best that I could do. And by the time I got back to the office, uh, my editor was showing me that she had posted a picture of us on Instagram. Um, and she captioned it, uh, if this guy isn't a climate reporter, he should be one. And, uh, you know, I, I went on to, to, to cover COP26 remotely from here, here from the Caribbean uh, and the impact of the decision making at COP26 in Glasgow, uh, those decisions had on the people of the Caribbean. I did some courses uh, the year after uh, in climate change, in climate journalism, uh, did a fellowship with Climate Tracker, and ultimately they liked my work so much they offered me a, a spot uh, to attend COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. So. It sort of snowballed from a very, very, uh, you know, shaky start about not knowing anything about climate change, not really even wanting to do the interview, I guess, with the UN Global Ambassador for Climate Change. It sort of snowballed and, you know, I, I became more and more interested in it. Uh, but to answer your question, um, when I realized the lack of awareness and the lack of education surrounding uh, climate change, uh, and, and especially the glaring changing in climate that we are experiencing in the Caribbean, the Caribbean saw unprecedented heat waves uh, this year, violent rainfall in some instances. Wh when you see all of that happening and people aren't aware why it's happening and why the climate is different from when they were growing up, I think that really inspires me, motivates me um, to continue uh, to tell stories uh, of, of the changing climate and the impact it is having on our small islands. I can understand that completely. You, you saw a gap, I guess, uh, that really needed to be filled uh, you you, you just put the nail on the head. That, that is smack in that is smack on it because uh, you know we have a running joke. I have a running joke. I mean nobody else laughs at it, but <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know I always say um, you know when it comes to climate stories, climate change stories, 
journalists run in the other direction. Uh, we don't have enough of us, you know, who are telling it's, it's increasing, but we don't still don't have enough of us telling climate stories in the Caribbean. And you're right. That, that's a huge gap to be filled. And, and, and I'm one of them trying to fill it. Oh, for sure. So in terms of going to, um, to COP27, were there any challenges just in terms of actually getting there in terms of getting to the event itself? I mean, there are th these these conferences welcome. I think what 50,000 50, plus people. So logistically, nightmare for the whole city. Logistically, it's a nightmare for everyone trying to get there because you're trying to uh, get hotels, you're trying to get rooms, you're trying to get a lot of things done. So it's it's very logistically it's very difficult. Uh, and um, you know, I was lucky that I had Climate Tracker do a lot of the heavy lifting for me. Um, but yes, when you got there, when you got at the, the conference, the, the hours are very long, the days are very long. Uh, it just sort of bled one in, uh, one day into the next. So it was a lot of hard work. It took a lot of long hours, a lot of research. Uh, you know, sometimes you'd be very frustrated because the stories just aren't panning out the way that you want it to pan out. So yeah, it was quite a journey. Okay. And for other young people who, you know, they see the cop, there might be activists, there might be people who want to make some kind of a difference or want to be more directly involved. You know, what avenues are there to get more involved in the COP? Let me answer it like this. Um, I don't think anybody should be uh, interested per se in the COP as opposed to climate change. Uh, if you're interested in climate change, then you'll be interested in COP. But COP's really, uh, it takes place once a year. It's two weeks in a very nice city. Uh, it, it's, you know, a, a lot of uh, world leaders attend. It's a big deal, but it happens once a year and it happens only for two weeks. Uh, you don't just cover climate change for two weeks. You cover climate change all year round. So my advice would be that you have to have an interest in covering climate change, covering the environment, telling stories uh, of just transition, of climate finance, the impact of loss and damage, and the need for a loss and damage fund, you know, and, and other stories connected with climate change. And when you're, when you're starting to tell those stories, uh, then I would suggest that you sort of aim for attending the United Nations Climate Change Conference, attending uh, a COP where you can now dive even deeper uh, and tell the stories of what's actually happening at these conferences. But, um, you know, I think it's kind of like aiming for a COP in, in, in many ways. I'm not saying not to, but I'm, but I'm saying that COP is just once a year and the decisions are made there. It's, it's, it's like the main event uh, in a boxing card. But there are other things that happen throughout the year that build up to the COP that are equally important, in some cases more important than what happens at the actual event. So my advice would be, yes, COPs are really great. You should, you should strive to attend one, two or three. Or there are some people who have attended almost all. But certainly uh, after the event and before the event, you have to have an interest in also um, covering climate change. I love that response. Um... Brilliant point made there. Absolutely true. So in some cases, some people can be there, like yourself, for instance, especially as a journalist. And I guess what I would ask is, um, when you go in, what are the kinds of goals that you have in mind? 
That's such a good question. And that's such an important question for anybody who's going to cover COP, whether you're working for CNN or MSNBC or Fox or Sky or BBC, or you're just working for a small network like CNC3 Television or TV Jamaica. Uh, it, you have to have a plan of action. So in my case, uh, I'm not exactly going to go with the same goals as, let's just say, uh, CNN. CNN might go there and they would want to know, well, when are we going to cut coal? You know, because, you know, we've got some coal plants that have started back up in Europe um, after the pandemic. India, a large exporter of coal. Uh, and we all know that coal is one of the, uh, you know, dirtiest forms of energy that we have. So, uh, you know, that's not really that's not going to interest me because we in the Caribbean don't often coal is not a big deal for us. Oil and gas are a big deal. The loss and damage fund is very important as well um, because our small Caribbean nations are being impacted uh, almost on a day-to-day -day basis by the changes in climate. So what they are covering versus what we are covering are completely different. And I think it's very important um, that we cover the things that are impacting us most. What I want to also ask is about the role of technology, right? You've covered the cup in person. You've also covered it at a distance. I feel like you might have a lot of insight just in terms of how young people, especially, right, um, are getting more involved and can get more involved in the climate fight. I just think there are lots of people out there who, even when they are aware of what's going on, they sort of see themselves as, uh, I would say, sort of far away from it. Even those who understand that we'll all be affected, it's like they still don't see themselves as being involved, you know, they Think that maybe you have to be part of some large foundation or something. What are some of the ways that technology can sort of bridge that particular gap? Listen, that is such a key point because it, 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 we, you don't need to be part of a foundation. You don't need to be part of a mainstream media network to be covering climate change. There are people I have, I, I know people like in very rural communities in South Trinidad that start Facebook groups because uh, it's easy for them. Facebook is free. You get to network with a lot of different people in Trinidad and Tobago and around the Caribbean, uh, who all who have a, a very similar interest in covering climate change and in covering the impacts of climate change. So I think it's very easy now more than ever before to uh, to cover climate change and, and, and anything else. You know, you don't need to work for a mainstream network. You don't need to to be part of a major foundation like Open Society or, or, or the Cropper Foundation. Um, all very good. All do very good work. But us in our very small pockets uh, of where we live can make a huge influence uh, by just, you know, uh, using social media platforms and digital platforms that are available to us. I think what's most important in this, Jelani, and I can't stress this enough because climate change is, is a little bit tricky. Um, it's boring, you know, and, and it, it's not a topic that everybody reads. It's not a topic that everybody is interested in. So I think you have to be very interested in the topic itself to, to cover it, to be willing to tell stories about it. Um, and I think that's the most important thing. I think if you're passionate about telling climate stories, then you'll be passionate about, you know, using the digital platforms, the free platforms that are available widely now over the internet to tell the stories and, and, and to push the agenda uh, of, you know, a cleaner climate. You know, I think that is one of the biggest things. Your ability to actually influence global change is right there in your hand in some cases. There are people, however, who 
have managed to achieve certain things at the COP and just in terms of the larger fight, especially as small island developing states, because you know we have a lot of struggles at the COP. For instance, we know last time we actually got um, some agreements in terms of the loss and damage fund. Are there any stories that stick out in your mind? I'll be honest with you. Uh, you know, there are a lot of good things happening in small pockets of the world um, when it comes to climate change. I, I wish I could remember the Pakistan climate minister's name. It's a short Google away uh, in, in case anybody's interested in looking her up. Uh, and this might seem grand but it's or, or, or trivial, depending on how you view it. But this, this happened at COP27 in Egypt. And I'll never forget this. She's, she's an incredible woman. Uh, she's the Pakistan climate minister. She showed up there. Pakistan saw devastating, record-breaking, unprecedented flooding in its country last year. And she showed up in Egypt uh, representing her country and small island developing states because she's part of the G77 plus China. And when they were setting the agenda for COP in the early hours and the early days of that conference, uh, the United States, I think a lot of people who followed that, co that conference would recall, the United States and other major countries uh, were against uh, making loss and damage an agenda item. That's even discussing it. This is not launching a loss and damage fund. This is actually just putting it on the agenda to say we can discuss it and we could talk about it and we could try to come up with an agreement and negotiate on it. That, that's it. We're not establishing a loss and damage fund. The United States and other large-scale developed countries were totally against it. They didn't want any part of it. They kicked up against it. They didn't want it. And that woman decided that, well, if you are, if you guys aren't going to talk about it, then what's the point of me being here? Uh, I'm just wasting time in a very fancy city, eating very good food while my people are flooding. So I'll just pack my stuff and leave. And her stance would eventually, after many hours of negotiation, would lead to loss and damage funding being an agenda item. They decided, well, they said, look, hang on, wait, we will we'll consider it, we'll put it as an agenda item. And because of her, uh, and her stance, uh, and she got, she rallied people around her from small countries like Trinidad and Tobago, like from the Caribbean, uh, you know, uh, like from the Pacific Islands, like from Latin America. She rallied people, and because of her stance uh, and, the, and those who stood with her, they were able to push loss and damage funding, like you mentioned, to an agenda item at the COP conference last year. Fast forward a year later, yes, there's been a lot of back and forth once more, but it could go over the line to operationalization at this COP. Uh, so, you know, I, for me, and just to tell you, that woman, just to, just to, uh, just so that you know that I didn't exaggerate on the, the heroic efforts, I, I wish I could remember her name. I have a picture with her. Um, that woman was named as one of the world's top 20 most powerful women in 2022, last year. I remember seeing her on CNN.com. Uh, she was named as one of the most powerful women for, for last year uh, across the globe. So there are people who are standing up uh, against uh, huge lobbyist groups and huge oil and gas companies in major ways, some, sometimes people don't even you know, see or hear about these people who are really championing the cause of climate change. But my point is that you don't really do it because you want to become a champion, but you do it because you know it's the right thing to do and you want to see a positive outcome. Yes, indeed. Um, I believe Sherry Rahman? Yes, Sherry Rahman. Yeah, that, that's correct. Go. 
So yeah, and, and th- this incredible woman, and and she's she walks around the conference, uh, you know, uh, with everybody taking pictures. You know, I took a picture with her having coffee. So she's very accessible. She's a very down to earth person, who whose heart is in the climate fight, and and you could see that. Some of our listeners might remember our episode on the loss and damage fund where Ruana Haynes spoke about the tendency of world leaders, particularly those representing developed nations, to lean on their political power at the cup. A fellow negotiator from a developed country that I will not name said to me to my face that if I think that they will ever agree to establish a loss and damage fund on COP27, I'm dead wrong. It would happen over their dead body. The defiance shown by representatives such as Sherry Rahman serves as a good reminder of the need to stand our ground as developing nations, even in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. Of course, in that same episode, we also heard a bit about Shaley Fleewing's first-time experience of the chaotic atmosphere on the ground at the event. So, naturally, we were curious about what Ryan had to say. COP27 was your first COP. What were your first impressions? Frustrating, uh, <laughs> incredibly tired, exhausted, <laughs> but incredibly rewarding. Um, I think, you know, when you get to COP, uh, your first in-person experience, the first few days are very frustrating. You're wondering what's going on. You're getting lost everywhere you go. You can't find yourself back to the media center. You can't find people that you can't find stories. Uh, and your editor might be back home looking for stories or waiting for stories. And you can't find the stories that you want to find. Uh, and then by day three, you sort of start finding your feet and you start finding people and, you know, you start finding your way around. Uh, and I think, you know, that's that's every person who attends COP. I think that's their experience. You know, now headed back to COP, I think I'm a lot more prepared for what I'm getting myself into um, as opposed to last year. But yes, it, COPs are meant to be frustrating. It's frustrating for everybody. It's frustrating for the negotiators. It's frustrating for the presidency. It's frustrating for the secretariat because it's long hours, incredibly long hours, long hours of negotiating, long hours of discussions, long hours of compromising. It, it, it's it's all very long. And, 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 you know, in the end, it might sound like an oxymoron, but by the end of the two weeks, um, you'd realize that it flew by pretty fast. You know, um, it came and it went. Uh, but but it's a very long experience. The days are very long. I, I try to get to the conference maybe like 8 o'clock because not much is happening at 7 except people having coffee. And then you leave maybe sometimes you'd leave 11 o'clock at night, sometimes 10. Depends on the day. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, exhausting experience, to be very honest with you. Very tiring experience. But one, by the end of it, if you just keep pushing and keep plugging and keep going, uh, it, it's one that will feel incredibly rewarding. Before we let Ryan go, we also wanted to get his final thoughts. Is there anything before we finish up that you just want to share with our viewers? I would say that if you're interested in climate change uh, and interested in the way in which the Caribbean is being affected by this changing climate and this unprecedented weather of heat waves and violent storms and and everything, I I would encourage everyone to begin, um, even if it's just online, like you mentioned, through the digital spaces, um, and work your way up to a COP. 
definitely have COP on your bucket list, have it as a goal, have it as a target, but it doesn't necessarily have to start as your first goal um, because uh, COPs will come and COPs will go. Uh, it's not going anywhere. There's going to be another one next year and another one after that that you can always go to. But I think the most important thing is that you have to have that interest in covering climate change. I would suggest you find the niche in which you would like to, to cover COP, uh, to cover climate change. So for me, I'm very passionate about the Caribbean. I'm very passionate about what is happening in the Caribbean. I'm very concerned about what is happening in the Caribbean. And I'm also a little bit irritated by what is happening in the Caribbean because when, when you go to these global conferences, I feel, the level, the gap, the Atlantic Ocean gap that you see in between developed and developing nations, uh, and you see how developing nations are being treated, uh, and you see the lack of care sometimes and the lack of empathy. You're now asking vulnerable nations to fund their own loss and damage that they incur through climate change that they didn't even contribute to. When you see that, I, it sort of grinds me a little bit. Those things drive me. So find what drives you about this. Climate change is a very big topic. It's a little bit broad. So don't cover every part of climate change. You don't need to. But find your little space. My little space is that I'm very passionate about the Caribbean. I want to see the Caribbean not only survive the changing climate, but get the finance that it justly deserves for the disasters that it did not help create. That drives me. And my advice to everyone, Jelani, would be to find what motivates you within the climate space and pursue it with all your heart. Good journalism holds the power to help us navigate the complicated world of climate intervention by focusing our attention on relevant issues, extracting the important details and presenting them in a way that provokes thought, encourages action and helps to inform decisions. But sadly, not enough of our talented correspondents are even interested in covering the space. And the ones who are willing often lack the resources needed to capture the essence of events such as the COP. Journalists like Kalisha and Ryan are great examples of what can happen when the right people are inspired to apply themselves to causes like this one and given the opportunity to do so effectively. And organizations such as Climate Tracker are working to inspire and empower other young journalists across the world to represent their countries and tell the stories that need to be told. At the end of the day, it's all about increasing awareness and understanding. Caribbean SIDS can support the overall effort by placing more emphasis on climate change education, making better use of technology, and doing more to support the efforts of journalists driven towards climate action. Anyway, that's all we have for you on this episode of Caesar Voices. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to share their insights with us. We'd also like to give a special shout out to our funded partners, the Barbados Environment Conservation Trust, or BECT, and the Caribbean Center for Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency, or CECRE, who make these episodes possible. BECT aims to help Barbados reach its national development goals by supporting local initiatives aimed at environmental sustainability. While CECRE promotes renewable energy and energy efficiency investments, markets, and industries in the Caribbean. 
Of course, we'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in to the Caesar Voices podcast. If you like what you've been hearing so far, please feel free to give us a rating wherever you're listening. We'd also like to remind you that you can visit our website, caesarjournal.org slash donations to lend your financial support. Or join our monthly donor club on Patreon and gain access to exclusive content or even be featured in an episode of our podcast. Just click the links in the description. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode of Caesar Voices and feature your company or NGO, please click on our corporate link to learn more. 